Hey folks, it has been a while, but here we are with the history show. Just a couple of things to mention before we get to it. First is that I know that I spent the last half hour of the last show talking about stuff that was definitely not history. I don't think I'm sorry about it, but I apparently had some axes to grind and that's not exactly what you're here for, I think. The good news is that from here on, it's straight history, or as straight as history gets when you're specifically dialing in on foreign policy disasters. The second thing, as maybe you can hear right now, is that I've been sick with a cough for a week and a half. I excised anything that sounded too nasal, and personally, I think the raspy voice might be an actual improvement on my normal one, but if you hate it, sorry man, this is what I've got to work with. The third thing is that I committed to getting Iran done by the middle of this month, and I think that I'm going to hit that. Notes are done through the end. I've just got the writing and recording for the rest. So while next Monday will be a short show, in two weeks you should be looking at Iran 7. Rate, please. Review, please. Subscribe, share, publicize, convince your friends, please. Other than that, I'm John Coombs. We're talking about the Iranian Revolution, and this is safe for democracy. America is today the strongest, the most influential, and most productive nation in the world. ¿Para qué sirve entonces la civilización? ¿Para qué sirve la conciencia del hombre? ¿Para qué sirven las Naciones Unidas? But these differences were all forgotten in one unshakable unity of determination to find a way to end war. We do not want a war. We do not now expect a war. This generation of Americans has already had enough, more than enough, of war and hate and oppression. Across the world, we're hunting down the killers and we're showing them the definition of American justice. There is a recurring temptation to feel that some spectacular and costly action could become the miraculous solution to all current difficulties. We have an obligation to be of help where we can to freedom fighters, lovers of freedom and democracy from Afghanistan to Nicaragua. The United States has no intention of determining the precise form of Iraq's new government. That choice belongs to the Iraqi people. Those who make peaceful revolution impossible will make violent revolution inevitable. We want democracy to survive for all generations to come, not to become the insolvent phantom of tomorrow. All right, so we left off last time in kind of a mess. The previous episode was more about setting up concepts in preparation for the revolution than for actually running year by year through what was going on. But... Luckily, unless you're really, really interested in court politics and Iranian minutiae, we don't really need to detail the day-by-day between 1964 and 1977 or so, except in terms of those concepts that we went through last time. And, given that it's been a few months since that last outing, let's go through what those concepts were. First up, we've got the Shah's White Revolution, in which he used oil money to pour cash into infrastructure, agricultural reforms, industrialization, medicine, education, and the expansion of the state bureaucracy. We also know that the White Revolution wasn't exactly working out, that it was really geared towards the aristocracy and the upper classes, and that it wasn't serving the majority of the population. We discovered that by various means the White Revolution was pushing the Iranian population out of the countryside and into the cities. 
And likewise, we saw the Shah using the expanded state bureaucracy not necessarily to make sure that all Iranians got access to services, but to make sure that the state penetrated into every aspect of life, extending its control over the population. We heard about Savak, the secret police, probably more than anybody really wanted to. Its secret prisons and torture chambers, the way it was succeeding in stifling political speech and free expression, and the way that it was a part of an even larger security apparatus that penetrated and pervaded all of society in the Shah's Iran. We learned about theologians on the rise, both those like the Ayatollah Khomeini, who were harboring more or less secretly a hardline theocratic ideology, and those like Shariati, who wanted to blend Shia Islam and socialism into a particularly Iranian form of religious politics, one that kept clerics involved but out of office. We also learned how most Iranian thinkers at the time, from the far left to the far right, all subscribed to some version of West toxification or West sickness, the idea that the entrance of American, consumerist, materialist culture was bad for Islam and bad for Iran. And last but definitely in the minds of Iranians not least, we heard about the Persepolis party, where the Shah celebrated the anniversary of 2,500 years or so of Iranian kingship and where he flaunted the incredible wealth and extravagance of his court in front of the world, and, more importantly, in front of his increasingly discontented people. I think that uh, we can uh, say very firmly and with absolute uh, certainty that Iran will not only become an industrial nation, but, uh, in my assessment, in 12 years' time, enter what we say the era of the great civilization. The era of the great, great civilization for those who are interested to know, means a kind of a welfare state where everybody, since he's born until he's dead, will enjoy every kind of social insurances. The one event that really inaugurated the set of changes that would eventually snowball into revolution was the election of Jimmy Carter in November of 1976. But into the mid-70s, cracks had already begun to appear in the glittering facade of Iranian enlightened monarchy. All those young Iranians who had gone abroad to study that we talked about last episode, the ones who were reading and translating Franz Fanon, Che Guevara, Giap, and Mao, they organized protests and resistance groups on their campuses and began to turn academic opinion in the U.S. and Europe against Mohammad Reza Shah. And academic feeling doesn't just filter out as students graduate. These are the people that get interviewed in newspapers and on TV, the ones that appear on NPR when they need an Iran expert, and the ones that get hired into the White House. At the same time, the American public and press, having felt themselves deceived by Nixon and Watergate, and disillusioned by the farce of supporting dictatorial regimes in Saigon through the whole Vietnam War, were beginning to get real wary of our supporting unsavory characters abroad. And arms and rhetoric headed for Tehran began to smack of support for the unsupportable. Helping out was that people who had been held and tortured by Savak had been slowly escaping from the country, and their stories, like the ones we quoted from Reza Barahani last episode, the terrible ones about torture, they were adding to the generalized unease a very specific picture of the hideousness of what was going on in Tehran. At the top, though, even as Nixon resigned and Ford took over and then later Jimmy Carter came into office, official U.S. rhetoric remained supportive of the Shah. Jimmy Carter's peace and democracy-oriented speeches, both on the campaign trail and in office, would come to play an important role soon enough but the new president had no problems, or not enough problems, in arming the Shah. Mohammad Reza came to visit Carter not long into his term, and according to Michael Axworthy in Revolutionary Iran, quote, 
Whatever the rumors and suspicions in Iran, Carter was keen to display his backing for the Shah's regime. He accepted an invitation for a quick return visit only a few weeks later. He was in Tehran on New Year's Eve and made a speech that became notorious, declaring the Shah's Iran to be, quote, an island of stability, unquote, in the region, saying that, quote, there is no other head of state with whom I feel on friendlier terms and to whom I feel more gratitude, unquote, and unquote. And Carter backed up that talk with action, despite what he'd said while campaigning about drawing down on military support for regimes overseas. From Emma Rothschild in the New York Review of Books, who we heard from last time, in an article titled Carter and Arms, No Sale, from September 1977, quote, Carter, before he became president, expressed moral revulsion at America's role as the arsenal of the world. These feelings seem to have been superseded by a more strategic view of arms and foreign policy. As early as July 1976, before he was elected, Carter said, quote, We ought to assess every arms sales policy on an individual nation basis. In other words, if we think the sale of arms can better preserve peace in a portion of the world and carry out our committed foreign policy, then let the arms sales be made on that basis alone, unquote and unquote. You've got to remember too here that at least, or especially in Iran's case, this was all particularly tempting. We get to fob off the role of policemen in the Persian Gulf and all of its oil shipping onto the Shah. And the Shah in general, despite his oil income, was taking out loans from the U.S. to buy arms from the U.S. and then paying interest on those loans to the U.S. Why wouldn't we do it, the policymakers in Washington must have been thinking. And you, listener, have no doubt that we were selling those arms. From Rothschild again, quote, The distribution of military orders this year still recalls the height of the Nixon-Ford arms boom. So far, $3.19 billion in sales, or well over half of the total, are to Iran. In July alone, the Carter administration racked up some $400 million in new Iranian orders, unquote. And in today's money, that's $13 billion and $1.6 billion, respectively. But that was far from all. In 1978 alone, the Shah placed orders for another $12 billion in American armaments, $48.5 billion in today's money. That was for a large number of advanced fighters, including F-16s, naval destroyers, and nuclear submarines, which would have made Iran a sea power in its own right, at least as far as the Indian Ocean. While we tend to think of Islamic Iran as the originator of the nuclear program, in that same year, 1978, Mohammad Reza signed deals with several West European countries for nuclear plants. Iran, because of the great leadership of the Shah, is an island of stability in one of the more troubled areas of the world. Right around the same time period, the failures of the Shah's white revolution were becoming more and more evident within Iran, for all that things still looked all right from without. From Axworthy now, quote, The Shah's regime had achieved a lot by the mid-1970s. Unlike many other national leaders in many countries, including some democratic politicians, the Shah deserved credit not just for governing to secure himself, his dynasty, or his interest group in power, but for a genuine effort to move his country forward in its development, which had achieved real gains. Gross national product per capita had jumped to $2,000 from 200 in 1963. Much of this was down to the oil boom, but the Shah was himself partly responsible for the big rise in oil income, and the income was being reinvested. The country had reoriented away from agriculture towards more developed economic activities that would yield greater benefits to the people in industry and services. 
The movement of the population to the cities, however traumatic and marked by deprivation as it was in the short term, could be regarded as a necessary step towards a more sophisticated, developed, modern society. Investment had greatly improved infrastructure and the standard of education and health services. Women and minorities had benefited from his reforms. Iran was respected internationally and had taken on a more confident regional role, as evidenced by her influence both within OPEC and within the regional security organization, CENTO, which was supposed to be the southern version of NATO but never really worked out that way. The Shah's relationship with the U.S. had also matured since the 1950s. He was less of a stooge and more of a partner, unquote. Now, Axworthy himself goes on in the next few paragraphs to lay into the inadequacies of and untruths of that statement. But I wanted to read it in full because it's a great example of how the Shah saw what was going on and how the U.S. foreign policy establishment would have liked to characterize the situation, thus legitimating our support for the regime. But look at that paragraph. You're not analyzing standards of living, but gross national product per capita something that deliberately obscures that most of the new oil wealth went upwards, and that huge portions of the Iranian middle classes and lower classes didn't see any of it. The country had moved from agriculture to more developed activities, it says. That sounds good, but while it's not exactly a worldwide realization yet, those of us who have worked in development, especially, have seen the lie inherent in this kind of reasoning. I've seen contented full employment in dollars-to-dollars less prosperous farming communities And I've seen people getting beaten to death by under-regulated factory life and torn down by cycles of layoffs and under- and unemployment in areas that dollars-to-dollars were making more than rural communities. What you might want to ask, if you were going to get a little bit more nuanced, is whether Iran was exporting more than raw materials and whether it was producing enough to meet domestic consumption. The answers were no and no, and what was worse, in the Shah's rush to move the countryside into the cities, Agricultural production had fallen so hard that Iran was importing food. Again, the movement towards urban life is only a necessary step towards a more sophisticated, developed, modern society if you take as a given that rural living is inferior and that nothing can be done for rural services and education. That was the Shah's thesis, but it's far from an absolute truth. Everything in that Axworthy excerpt was some kind of true if you squinted and tilted your head but the overall picture was not as rosy, as much as it might have looked great in the toniest parts of the capital. The oil boom was actually starting to destabilize the regime towards the end. From the Cambridge history, quote, the consequences of the Shah's megalomaniac dreams were rising prices, shortages of food and other basic items, lack of adequate housing, the breakdown of essential services, and rising unemployment among the unskilled, exacerbated by the drift of the rural poor into the fast-growing urban slums and shanty towns." Unquote. These contrasts, of large projects undertaken with admirable-sounding statistics, along with very little or even negative gains on the ground, characterized the whole of the White Revolution. They also created enclaves in Iran, composed of urban elites and the regime-connected owners of export-oriented plantations, who had greatly benefited and who were either blind to or willing to ignore the failures of reform socially, politically, and economically. Similar to rapidly industrializing or de-Sovietizing countries everywhere, a small group of people became better off while the majority moved from what had been subsistence into real poverty, with the helpful example of their better-off erstwhile peers to point out to them exactly how poor they were. The gains were also localized in the majority to Tehran, 
which by the late 1970s was producing more than half of the country's industrial goods and receiving more than half of its development loans. What's key here is that the Shah was not spending the oil money well. If he had promoted protected infant industries and industrialized based on what Iranians needed and wanted to consume, the way that the South Koreans did, with the bonus of basically free money from oil, things might have gone well. But he was doing it through crony capitalism, which was sure to enrich the upper and not the middle class. And he did it in conjunction with his false agrarian reform, which, in lieu of creating small independent farmers, instead pushed people into the cities, which pricked inequality and crime. And he was overspending, despite massive oil revenues, so that the country had to take American loans and submit to IMF and U.S. pressures not to close up the economy to protect domestic industries. What became the most glaring problem in the late 1970s was inflation, and virtually everything the Shah was doing exacerbated it. Remember that at base, and for the average person, inflation means one thing, that prices are rising, which makes the money in your pocket worth less. When the government pours money into the economy, like it was doing in Iran, vendors of almost everything can charge more. The Shah was bringing in foreign engineers and experts to help industrialize and run the oil industry, and all of them were making foreign and not Iranian wages, so that cities like Tehran came to reflect price structures more like those in the U.S. than elsewhere in the country. The Shah also pushed so many Iranian citizens into the military that large numbers of technical positions that Iranians were qualified to fill were instead staffed by those same kinds of foreign workers. Along with the Iranian entrepreneurial aristocracy, those foreign workers pushed up housing prices. There are only so many apartments, and when some proportion of the population in the city is making 10 times what the average Iranian is, eventually housing prices are going to skyrocket to match the means of that richer fraction. And the same thing went for any number of other things for sale, pricing Iranians out of their own economy. Likewise, the problem with not producing your own food, like I mentioned earlier, is that you've got to import at a premium. If everybody's earning money like people earn in the countries that you're importing from, that's less of a problem. But if everybody isn't, and you've pushed farmers into factories, then you've got a huge population that is used to being able to feed itself for pennies a day, and which is now struggling to come up in the scratch to buy a loaf of Wonder Bread fresh in from Pennsylvania. So at this point, the beneficiaries of the white revolution, the burgeoning urban white and blue collar working classes of urban Iran, even they were scrimping to be able to pay for food and housing. But while industrialization was proceeding at a breakneck pace, most of the people who'd been forced into the cities did not have factory jobs, and they were living in kinds of squalor and poverty that they'd never seen even out in their former rural lives. What's more, the Shah fought inflation and rising prices not by addressing any of their root causes, but by declaring war on businessmen and profiteers, starting with the richest people who weren't part of his favored aristocracy, and they responded by moving their money into foreign banks. The Shah then followed up by moving down to bazaaris and individual shopkeepers, people who had as much ability to set their prices as their customers did, and he sent gangs of Savak-connected thugs into the bazaars to issue fines and to brutalize suspected price gougers. The crackdowns didn't endear the Shah, even to those disenfranchised urban strugglers that they were supposed to be helping, and they began to alienate him from Iran's conservative middle classes, people that up until this point had been content, if not happy, with his regime. Now, Iran had enjoyed such a bonanza of oil revenues through the early 1970s because OPEC had set prices high. But as the West began to build up reserves and looked into alternative fuels, 
And younger listeners might not remember, but we were gunning for alternative energy in 1975, almost as hard as in 2009. The Saudis lowered prices against the wishes of other OPEC members by flooding the market with cheap crude. All of this sent oil prices and revenues tumbling in Iran, drastically reducing the Shah's ability to mitigate the effects of inflation going into 77 and 78. From Abrahamian, quote, After 14 years of white revolution, Iran still had one of the worst doctor-patient ratios, one of the highest child mortality rates, and one of the lowest hospital bed-to-population ratios in the whole of the Middle East. 68% of the adults remained illiterate. The number of illiterates rose from 13 million to nearly 15 million. Fewer than 40% of the children completed primary school. The teacher-student ratio deteriorated. Only 60,000 university places opened each year for as many as 290,000 graduates. And the percentage of the population with higher degrees remained one of the lowest in the Middle East." This is the difference between a fake revolution set up by a U.S. puppet and a real one. The Cubans, for example, with, yes, money from nowhere in terms of the USSR, the same way that Iran had money from nowhere in oil, managed in less time to industrialize, to hit a higher literacy rate than the United States, to create a world-class healthcare system, to put so many kids through advanced degrees that they're still chronically overeducated today, and to reach productive full employment. For much of the last century, and nearly all of this one, the U.S. has been in the business of picking losers abroad. And the Shah was certainly one of those. But it did not have to be that way. At one point late in the game, as, in addition to everything else, traffic in Tehran was becoming a problem of crisis proportions, the Shah's younger brother thought to ask, quote, If the people don't like traffic jams, why don't they just buy helicopters? Unquote. And while that might seem like an insane question, It's really a statement from someone so cut off, so insulated in his social group from the average person of his country, that he begins to think it's a legitimate inquiry. This was the setup for revolution. We've kind of backed off of the question of inequality in the days of Donald Trump, since there's so much else to be worried about, but we should not have. Trump, by not letting go of his businesses and letting investors, foreign and domestic, cozy up to him by spending millions of dollars at his hotels and golf clubs, is working to institute the exact kind of crony capitalism that dominated Iran right before the revolution. And while we don't have the same exact kind of secret police or state apparatus to keep people in line, ours is only different by degree, and we do have just the same kind of wealth inequality and development distributed upwards, something that Donald Trump and the Republican Congress are right now actively trying to make worse with the tax reform plan that disproportionately cuts taxes for the wealthy, while in some analyses increasing them for the working and middle classes. If there was the daily criticism against our shortages, our weaknesses, and this and that, it's even encouraged. If the criticism is directed against the foundation of the state and to weakening of the state and serving the interests of a foreign country, obviously we are not going to allow that. Why should we? Those who have done it, what advantage have they got from that? Uh, But freedom of opinion in any country and being able to criticize the existing organizations is a fundamental principle of democracy. Mm-hmm. And if Iran lays claim to democracy, then these principles should be honored. Yes, within the limit of the law. That depends what kind of laws you have. Like I mentioned a while ago, even though Jimmy Carter didn't walk the walk on peace and cutting off support for unsavory U.S. allies, he did talk the talk. 
And despite the evidence of ongoing arms sales, it looks like in the late 70s the Shah was getting nervous about the American president's rhetoric and the mounting, negative international attention that Iran had begun to receive. In response, Mohammad Reza began to open up the regime politically for the first time since the early 1960s. Domestic writers and speakers were allowed to express unprecedented levels of criticism, and representatives of international organizations like the Red Cross were allowed into the country to inspect prisons. Members of the perennially defunct Liberal National Front began to write open letters, and lawyers from abroad came to attend the trials of dissidents. From 1977 on, the Shah began making the opening moves that would result directly in his downfall two years later. From the Cambridge History, quote, Meanwhile, and largely unknown to middle-class liberal protesters, the sermons in the mosques and the rumors in the bazaars were becoming increasingly subversive, fueled by cyclostyle letters and sermons on cassettes, smuggled into the country from Najaf, where Ayatollah Khomeini was denouncing the godless tyranny of the Shah, agent of the United States, unquote. The Shah, for his part, was blindsided by all of the discontent. For decades, his courtiers had shielded him both from the failures of the White Revolution and from the excesses of Savak and the rest of his security apparatus. Even at this late date, the Shah was convinced of his own popularity and the efficacy of his government. And while it's probably true that his advisors cut him off from the voice of the common people, the Shah had nobody to blame there except himself. If you surround yourself with sycophants and cut off at the knees every politician who has actual rapport with the populace, rather than supporting and learning from them, there's not much more that you can expect than that at some point push will come to shove. And when you get there, you've got to hope that your military is as dedicated and as indoctrinated as China's was at Tiananmen, because half measures won't work, and even full measures, as in the case of Bashar al-Assad in Syria, might not do the trick. I mean, not that you want to give counsel to authoritarian regimes, but you've got to go about periods of opening carefully. And before you unrestrain the press, you might want to make real steps toward fixing some of the problems that they're definitely going to nail you on. Now at this point, we've got to rewind a little bit. If you recall, through the 1960s and 1970s, the Shah had created a sort of fake two-party system in Iran, and we were calling the parties, as the Iranians reportedly did at the time, the Yes and Yes Sir parties. One was set up to be a little bit more conservative, and the other a little bit more liberal, and to create the illusion of democracy and debate in the country. This was partly to appeal to the international scene, and partly, I think, on the Shah's part, to indulge his own perception of a functioning Iranian Republican system. In fact, when one speaking to the official opposition party, the slightly more liberal one, the People's Party, as opposed to the other one, which was the New Iran Party, the Shah said, quote, If I were a dictator rather than a constitutional monarch, then I might be tempted to sponsor a single dominant party, such as Hitler organized, or such as you can find today in communist countries. But as a constitutional monarch, I can afford to encourage large-scale party activity free from the straitjacket of one-party rule or the one-party state." Unquote. Despite that, in March 1975, the Shah dissolved those two parties and created the Resurgence Party, announcing that he would now run a one-party state. A strange turnaround not so much because the Shah was actually enamored of two-party democracy, but because creating an all-encompassing one-party state is an entirely different direction than just having two fake ones kicking around. A one-party state, like the one that existed here in Mexico for a long time, and like we just mentioned was the structure in fascist Germany and Italy and much of the communist world, is one in which the party parallels the structure of the state, and in which the party tries to integrate the entire society. Young people become the young resurgence, 
Women become the women's resurgence. You've got the resurgence of the bazaar, and ideally to replace the Tuda and other workers' parties, you'd have the resurgence of the factory and the oil refinery. And the idea is that the party can serve as a kind of interface between the government and the population. Now, the Shah got this idea, per Abrahabian, from young Iranians returning from studies abroad, where they'd either read or heard from Sam Huntington, the political scientist at Harvard, somebody who poli-sci majors today still have to read. And at the time, Huntington had advanced the idea that creating a corporate one-party state was one of or the best way for countries to remain stable as they modernized and industrialized, a process that in general has tended to destabilize internal politics. You may remember from last episode me talking about a society needing a release valve, and that valve in democracies being free expression and the vote. Well, in Huntington's model, the party becomes that valve. Even if society isn't very free or free at all, citizens can express themselves by way of the party in internal debate, and likewise the government can also use the party to communicate with the population. Now that's all abstract, so consider this. A country is modernizing, and in this country, teachers begin to feel left behind. Their pay is low, their hours are long, and there aren't enough of them. So they organize into a union and begin to strike. In an authoritarian country, the ruler has a problem because he needs those teachers, but he also can't brook a challenge to his authority. In an authoritarian one-party state, those teachers already have a union. It's just an organ of the party. And rather than striking, they meet and tell their union head the problem. He reports up the hierarchy, and maybe teacher pay gets quietly increased or party funds get moved into teachers' pockets. It's really complicated, and there's a million other ways it can and does play out, But basically, the single party gives the ruling elite another way to control the population and, in the best case, a way for the population to communicate upwards as well. Predictably in Iran, though, the Shah wasn't much interested in two-way communication. And likewise, in other countries with this kind of system, except where it was imposed by the USSR, places like Hitler's Germany, Mussolini's Italy, Mexico under Cárdenas, Castro's Cuba, like it or not, those systems grew up organically among the people. Creating one sui generis and forcing it was a bold move. This new party, Resurgence, launched newspapers, signed up all Iranian politicians, started women's and labor organizations, held rallies and parades, and enrolled more than 5 million Iranians through local branches. None of which is that surprising, since the Shah accused anyone who refused to join of being a Tuda or a communist sympathizer. Party-sponsored gangs joined forces with Savak, and before long, if somebody was trying to recruit you, It was either join up or explain why you didn't want to to one or another intelligence service. From Abrahamian, quote, Furthermore, the government-controlled press began to talk of the need to uproot the bazaars, build highways through the old city centers, eradicate worm-ridden shops, replace the inefficient butchers, grocers, and bakers with efficient supermarkets, unquote. Through resurgence, the Shah was moving in on the bazaar, trying to do away with the last holdout of traditional Iranian culture in the cities, the narrow streets and the open-air markets, to replace them with a much more American version of consumption. And along with the Bazaris, the regime went after their middle-class conservative comrades-in-arms, the ulama, or the clergy. Resurgence styled the Shah as a religious as well as a political leader, tried to get rid of head coverings for women, denounced the ulama as medieval holdovers, and, in what Abrahamian considers its most audacious and ill-advised move, scrapped the traditional Islamic calendar in favor of one based on the Iranian monarchy. 
Resurgence was the last great initiative of the White Revolution, but according to Abrahamian, quote, instead of establishing stability, the Resurgence Party weakened the whole regime, cut the monarchy further off from the country, and intensified resentment among diverse groups, unquote, including the clergy and the bizarres, the two classes that had, again, been hitherto content to tolerate the regime, as long as it had mostly left them alone. The Shabanu's duties are manifold. She is to be seen more often traveling through the villages of Iran than at glittering openings and royal gatherings. Every year, she takes a prolonged trip through the far-flung villages of Iran, talking to the people, finding out their problems and needs, and helping wherever she can. And they come by the thousands, the poor and the illiterate, the oppressed and the have-nots, to see, to talk to, and to pay homage to an empress who has done and is doing so much for their social upliftment. These villagers and nomads who flock to see their empress are to a great extent illiterate and poor. And in spite of the millions of oil dollars flowing into Iran, and in spite of the Shah's white revolution, their living conditions have not shown much significant improvement. So, with resurgence and invasion of Western workers, mass unemployment and poverty in the cities, rapidly rising inflation and rising discontent and unrest among all sectors of society besides the aristocracy in his court, Mohammad Reza Shah decided, because of Jimmy Carter's election, to start opening up Iranian politics in 1977. One of the big aspects of that opening was a set of court reforms that emboldened Iranian jurists and which subjected the judicial system to prying public eyes for the first time. Previously, everybody got a military tribunal with a military lawyer. Now they were tried in civil courts, which turned out much larger numbers of acquittals for protesters and dissidents, who judges were often reluctant to condemn. In February of 77, the Shah made a mass release of political prisoners, and spurred on by that in May, a group of 64 prominent Tehran lawyers got together and drafted an open letter to the Shah, which accused the government of violating the Constitution, called for an end to not just some, but all extra-constitutional military tribunals, and demanded greater independence for the judiciary. That June, the reconstituted, or at least newly active, National Front wrote another letter, per Axworthy, quote, criticizing autocratic rule and demanding a restoration of constitutional government, unquote. The Shah, feeling hamstrung by Carter and international opinion, did not retaliate or did not retaliate strongly enough against growing opposition, and the emboldened population ramped up their protests over the summer and into the autumn of 1977. Writers, lawyers, judges, and opposition politicians, long in exile either internal or external, penned manifestos and letters of increasing rhetorical severity addressed to the UN, the US, the international press, and the regime. The National Front founded its own newspaper again, and Mehdi Barzagan restarted the liberation movement, teaming up with the National Front and the religious Bizarre community. From Abrahamian again, quote, On October 10, 1977, the Goethe Institute in Tehran hosted an evening of poetry readings organized by the newly revived Writers Association. It was the first of a series of ten such evenings, which from the beginning had a political character. The German director, coming under pressure from the authorities, became more and more anxious that Zavok would close the institute down, and watched the proceedings from a distance with a bottle of whiskey that gradually emptied as each night went on. Many of the speeches made in between the readings were strongly critical of the Shah's regime, pushing against the boundaries of what was becoming permissible again. Many, if not most, of the speakers were Tudor sympathizers. Most of the audience were young students. 
On the fifth evening, one speaker asked for a minute of silence for those writers of the previous half-century who had suffered under censorship and repression and had died prematurely. By this time, despite the fact that there was virtually no reporting of them in the state-controlled media, the evenings were attracting crowds of several thousands, some of them from distant parts of the country, to huddle in the garden of the Institute. Audio and videotapes were recorded, reproduced outside the country, re-imported, and distributed. A prominent member of the association agreed to moderate his readings in order to avoid trouble, but when he came to the microphone found himself unable to hold back, reading some of his most radical poems against the Shah, some of them written from when he had been in prison. The bolder and more anti-regime the poems became, the more popular they were with the audience." Unquote. Iranian culture, like many non-American ones, is more in touch with poetry as a popular and political art form than we are, and poetry readings on that scale were no small political act. It wasn't lost on the regime, and while the readings at the German Institute finished without trouble, when 10,000 students turned up for a session of a subsequent series of readings on the 19th of November, the police came too. They killed one attendee and injured 70 others, and that violence sparked in-the-street protest for the first time since the early 1960s. Iran, economically and militarily one of the strongest nations on the Persian Gulf, is today on the threshold of a new era. Oil has brought wealth, and with it, a lot of problems that need solutions. The nation is being catapulted from the Middle Ages right into the 21st century and is in danger of losing its identity and forgetting its past cultural heritage. In mid-October, two Iranians went to visit Khomeini's son, living like his father in the Shia holy city of Najaf in Iraq. The son, Mustafa, was also a cleric, though lower key and lower profile than his father. Mustafa was discovered dead the next morning, officially of a heart attack. While Khomeini kept pretty quiet, his supporters attributed Mustafa's death to Sabak and organized speeches and demonstrations all through the 40-day period of mourning, demanding religious freedom, the return of the Ayatollah, restoration of the calendar, the release of political prisoners, and freedom of speech. The regime responded to their demands by putting pressure on Saddam Hussein to expel the Ayatollah, who ended up in Paris, and by, in January, publishing an article in the government's official Tehran Daily Newspaper. From Abrahamian, quote, Published under the title Black and Red Imperialism, the article alleged that Khomeini was plotting with communists and British interests against the Shah's government. It also said that Khomeini was a foreigner since his grandfather had been born into the Iranian community in India, and even suggested that he was homosexual, unquote. That same day, the 7th of January, 1978, a crowd ransacked the newspaper's offices. In the holy city of Qom, young seminary students marched and protested on the 8th and 9th, demanding, according to the Cambridge history, the return of the Constitution, freedom of speech and religious association, an end to censorship and police violence, the end of resurgence, and freedom for political prisoners. By the second day, the Bazaris had closed their shops and crowds from the city had joined the demonstration. Police trying to quiet the protests on the 9th fired into the air and then into the crowd, killing between 5 and 70 people and injuring hundreds. An Iranian named Shariat Madari was the senior cleric in Qom, and thus one of the most senior clerics in Shiism, and he called for the country to observe the 40-day mourning period again, and instituted a moratorium for the same period on public prayer. Ayatollah Khomeini, for his part, called for the protests to continue from where he was in Paris. Now, if Khomeini was the most prominent figure on the Islamic right, even though he was popular with most of the public who hadn't thoroughly read his work on Islamic theocracy, Shariat Madari, since Shariati's death in 1977, was probably the most prominent figure on the moderate Islamic left. 
and in the interest of simplicity, or at least limited complexity, I'm going to use Shariat Madari as a stand-in for his movement, the way that Khomeini was a stand-in for his. Now don't mistake me, Shariat Madari was out at the head of this stuff, but when I say his name, recognize that he also represents a large constituency among senior and lower-level clerics in Iran and Shiism worldwide. And what followed after those initial student protests over the article in question, in early January, was a cycle of upheavals that would end, eventually, in the destruction of Iranian monarchy. Because the protests had begun primarily among religious youth, the Iranian ulama directed the movement and its rhythms. For the first half of the year, that rhythm was 40 days. A protest, killings, mourning, and another protest. February 18th fell 40 days after the killings in Qom, and in part because the religious establishment had urged restraint in the intervening period, the demonstrations in most of Iran were peaceful. In the city of Tabriz, however, the police tried to bar entry into the main mosque of the city, where a large march had been heading, and violence broke out as the protesters tried to gain entry. From Abrahamian, quote, Demonstrators, however angry, rarely indulged in physical attacks on persons and private property. They focused instead on particular types of property, police stations and resurgence party offices, luxury hotels because they catered to the affluent rich, pornographic movie houses because they violated the puritanical mores of the bizarre middle class, and banks, mainly because they were owned by the royal family, the state, and the wealthy entrepreneurial class. Small banks owned by bizarres were often left untouched, and as European eyewitnesses in Tabriz reported, all of the large banks that were attacked lost all of their records, but not a single cent from their tills." Unquote. The Shah and his regime's response to the worsening situation was three-pronged. First, they worked to intimidate the opposition, from threatening letters, posters, and leaflets, to secret committees put together by Savak and resurgence that went about kidnapping and beating people from the Tuta, the Liberation Movement, the National Front, and the religious establishment. If you folks remember the government-sponsored gangs and death squads from Guatemala, this is the same kind of setup, that they weren't killing people at anything like the rate in Guatemala City. Second, the regime looked to appease the traditional middle class in the bazaar and the moderate clergy, ending the anti-inflation war and banning pornography, instituting a code of ethics for the royal family, and backtracking on the incendiary January article about Khomeini. Third, miraculously, they tried to limit inflation by doing stuff that actually limits inflation, like drawing down on government expenditures. Unfortunately, it looked like they'd missed the boat. The protests were about much more than inflation and economic distress now. And since the Shah wouldn't consent to draw down on military spending, cuts tended to directly affect, and hurt, the very people who were in the streets. The security forces fired on and killed protesters in Tabriz, and according to Abrahamian, quote, the 40-day rhythm continued, breathing in indignation, breathing out more demonstrations and intensified radicalism, like a great revolutionary lung, unquote. As the weeks rolled on, and as Khomeini kept calling for more and more radical demonstrations, and now, the overthrow of the regime, Shariat Madari and other moderate clerics came under pressure to do the same. They were reluctant to take that step, hesitant in the first place, and worried about the consequences for their followers. But as a result, younger members of the moderate movement began radicalizing and moving more towards Khomeini's camp. March 29th came 40 days after the killings in Tabriz, and while protests were again mostly peaceful, rioting that targeted police stations, statues and monuments to the Shah, and liquor stores broke out in Tehran, Isfahan, and Yazd. It was in the last of those three that security forces fired on protesters exiting a mosque and heading for the central police station, 
killing and maiming dozens. The regime's figure for the dead was 27, but the opposition claimed more than 100. May 10th followed March 29th, and even larger demonstrations sprang up, this time in all of the major cities of the country, and even the Shah canceled a vacation to oversee the pacification efforts in Tehran, where security forces had walled off the bazaar and shot tear gas into gathering crowds. In Qom, the holy city where the protests had begun, police shot dozens, and agents of either Savak or Resurgence or some other security organ chased two protesters into Shariat Midari's home and there shot them dead. June 17th would have followed May 10th, but by this point the moderate leaders of the movement were beginning to think that while the 40-day cycles had originally favored the protesters, helping them to coordinate in a time and in a place of limited freedom of communication, they were now tipping the protesters' hand to the regime and allowing the kind of well-coordinated and especially violent response that had taken place in May. Shariat Madare told people to chill, while Khomeini exhorted his followers to continue the unrest, knowing that violence in Iran pretty much moved things along for him. For the moment, though, the balance of leadership was still with the moderates, and things stayed quiet into June. Our intention was to make sure that the Shah's support was firm, and to make sure that Iran didn't come apart. Uh, Secretary Vance and I both felt that the best chance the Shah had to maintain his position was to go the direction of reform, to have early elections, to take human rights steps that would endure, would gain the confidence of his people. You first reestablish order, thereby asserting your authority, and shortly thereafter initiate reforms, having proven that you're in charge. Brzezinski felt we should make it very clear to the Shah that we would not object in any way if he decided to really crack down very hard and use what Brzezinski came to call the the iron fist. Even as protests died down, the regime continued its three-pronged strategy. It threatened and imprisoned members of the Writers Guild, which had sponsored the poetry readings of the German Institute, along with members of the Liberation Movement, the National Front, opposition lawyers, and human rights advocates. It went after the clergy, and by midsummer, per Axworthy, quote, about 70 of Khomeini's clerical supporters had been arrested, including Ali Khomeini and Akbar Hashemi Rafsanjani, unquote, who will later be two very important people. The Shah likewise promised free elections in the following year, to reopen seminaries and universities that he had closed because of the protests, apologized to Shariat Madari for straight murdering two people in his home, and swapped out the head of Zavak, who at this time was one general Nasiri the guy you might remember who was crucial to clinching Kermit Roosevelt's coup against Mossadegh. And the Shah called on his own family to be less corrupt. And at this point, some secular liberals were thinking, all right, this is pretty much what we wanted. But Khomeini, and even the more moderate religious, having seen what they could do, were now looking to do much more. To me, too, it seems like it would have been much too little and a lot too late, especially because it's not as if the simultaneous crackdown against the groups that the Shah needed to win over would have been invisible. Promising free and fair elections as you torture the opposition is hardly going to seem like an offer made in good faith. The protests so far had been made up of students, intellectuals, bizarres, and clergy, and had not yet included the participation of the majority of the urban working classes. That changed in the summer of 1978. While the 40-day anniversary of the May uprisings wasn't marked by protests, The measures that the regime had taken to curtail inflation had themselves caused a recession. Spending on new factories and construction dropped by a huge margin, which left urban wage earners out in the cold. Labor in Iran, 
or at least the labor that could get a coveted construction or factory job, had been relatively coddled by government spending for more than a decade, and wages had been jumping up by 30% or more a year, a factor which had helped to kill off the Tuda and other labor organizers. In the summer of 78, pay fell by that same percentage, and workers remembered how and why to strike. Work stoppages hit cities and industries across the country, and workers joined up with the protest movement. Because of calls to cool off, the summer was nearly free of the kinds of major, riotous demonstrations that had characterized the first half of the year. But the newly radicalized workers joined in with the limited marching that was going on, which set the stage for Ramadan in August. On the 19th of August, there was a fire in the Rex Cinema on Avadan, the island that held the heart of the Iranian oil industry. Somebody had locked the emergency exits from the outside, and 340 people burned to death. The regime reflexively blamed the fire on the opposition, and decades worth of investigations later, per everybody I've read, it looks like in fact a very small radical Islamic militia group was actually behind the fire. But by this point the Iranian public was so trained to see the government behind every killing, and correspondingly to believe the opposite of whatever the government was trying to tell them, that they became in general convinced that Savak or some other agency had perpetrated the fire. Mass protests flared up again, and with the new members of the opposition, they grew to the tens of thousands, with death tolls rising along with them. By the end of August, the Shah had placed ten Iranian cities under martial law. In keeping with his strategy, along with ramping up repression, the Shah made further concessions, now saying that Iran would transition to a Western-style democracy, and he replaced the Prime Minister with Jafar Sharif Imami, a moderate with ties to the senior clergy in the opposition. Imami immediately worked on the conservative religious, prosecuting prominent members of the Baha'i sect, which Shiites hold to be blasphemous, and closing the Ministry of Women's Affairs. Shariat Madari, always cautious and probably wondering if they'd reached the maximum accommodation they'd get from the Shah before the tanks rolled down every street in the country, told his followers to give Sharif Imami three months to implement the constitution. Imami struck a deal with the liberal opposition to limit protests following a controlled demonstration on the 4th of September, the last day of Ramadan that year. Hundreds of thousands hit the streets in Tehran without a thrown stone, but rather than staying home, in the following days they continued to turn out, with fully half a million people in the squares of the capital by Thursday, September the 7th. The crowds, without either Mehdi Barzagan of the Liberation Movement or Shariat Madari directing them, developed their own platform and began calling for the ouster of the Shah, a new constitution, and the establishment of an Islamic republic. Per Abrahamian, quote, The Shah was reluctant to permit all-out violent suppression of the demonstrations, but despite his extensive security apparatus, he was largely baffled by the protests against his rule. Members of that apparatus seemed scarcely better aware, unquote. They had thought, him and his security officers, that the threat was Marxism, and that it would always be Marxism, or some kind of foreign subversion, not legitimate discontent with government all of which speaks to the fundamental worthlessness of torture as a policing or informational technique. It works great for terrorizing populations, but terribly for knowing anything about them. Not only does somebody under torture not want to say, well, the Shah's just a dick, you know, but it also cools all other speech everywhere, which means you're never going to be able to take your people's temperature. I should mention at this point that the Shah had leukemia, something that because of court intrigues he hadn't been treating until recently, and some historians have pointed to that illness as the source of the Shah's indecisive and ineffective policy 
over 77 and 78. But Michael Axworthy, in his book Revolutionary Iran, contends, and I am inclined to agree with him, that despite that the Shah's illness might have fatigued him or worried him or caused him to want to put a bow on his white revolution in order to hand it over to his son, the Shah's fundamental misunderstanding of both the opposition and, apparently, his own regime had nothing to do with cancer and everything to do with the blinders he'd been wearing that had convinced him since the 1950s that every threat to his regime would be communist and not domestic. One of our laws is that communism is not allowed. It's banned, so you can't do it. There are not more than 3,300 political prisoners. And political prisoners, it happens to be that all of them are Marxists. And what does that prove? Marxism is outlawed in this country. It's illegal. Despite the Shah's reluctance to personally order the gunning down of the people marching, he placed one general, Golam Ali Ovesi, into the military governorship of Tehran and declared martial law. Ovesi was famously ruthless with Iran for the violence that he'd unleashed against similar but smaller protests in 1963. Protesters turned out despite the declaration, and by 8 in the morning on Friday the 8th of September, tens of thousands were already gathered in Jala Square, one of the principal plazas in the city. Security forces dispersed the crowd with tear gas, but the determined marchers came back and their numbers continued to swell. When they failed to disperse, the soldiers in the square opened fire, and by the end of the day, the agents of the Shah had turned rifles, machine guns, tanks, and even helicopters on protesters fleeing the square and moving throughout the city. The account of the dead is still disputed, but it probably falls somewhere between 87 and 200, with hundreds more wounded. Beginning on that day, which came to be known as Black Friday, protests across the cities of Iran became more frequent and more violent. Even more people took to the streets, reinforcing a feeling of safety in numbers for the demonstrators. And whereas before the opposition was split on how much of the regime it felt it needed to change, according to Axworthy, quote, the Shah lost the remainder of what in medieval Iran had been called far, the aura of rightful kingship, associated with just rule and military success. The people rejected him. They did not want to hear new suggestions or ideas from him. They just wanted him to go, unquote. In the aftermath of September 8th, Shariat Madari met up with members of the more secular liberal opposition, like Mehdi Barzigan and the leaders of the National Front, and they declared that their views vis-a-vis -vis the regime were the same as Khomeini's, effectively linking, for the time being, the moderate clergy, the secularists, into calls for the expulsion of the Shah, the drafting of a new constitution, and the creation of an Islamic republic, whatever that would mean. Strikes and protests multiplied into the autumn, to the point that by late October, there was a kind of rolling general strike in motion, with workers from all industries, blue and white collar, staying away from their stations and desks. The Shah, meanwhile, waffled between extremes, extending martial law and turning the government over to the generals, while also amnestying opposition members and cracking down on government corruption. He dissolved the resurgence party, canceled arms contracts, and made economic concessions to the middle class. He told exiles they were free to come home, and allowed some newspapers to keep printing criticism while the generals closed others. None of which had any effect on his people, except to make them suspect that he was going insane. And while Axworthy says that the Shah was, basically, implementing a logical mix of carrots and sticks, rather than being unbalanced by his cancer, Abrahamian says that the Shah, cancer or no, 
had never been capable of any decision and had always been mentally unstable when under stress. And far from abating, unrest ramped up as September ticked into October. In some cities, regime thuggery caused citizens to form defense brigades, which arrested Savak agents and police and established their own patrols to watch out for troublemakers. In Hamadan, the police raped three young girls and the city exploded, with demonstrators taking over and erecting barricades. Police and the army moved in after a few days to bloodily retake control. Meanwhile, in Abadan and some other cities, the military governors that the Shah was appointing had some success in forcing oil refinery workers to toil at gunpoint. But production was clearly going to fall short of what was necessary to meet domestic consumption and foreign commitments. And these industrial strikes may have been the most destabilizing thing going, because unlike street protests, you can't meet them or break them just with violence. You've only got so many oil engineers and technicians and rig workers, and when you've gunned them down, that's it. Around the same time, in November, two of the guerrilla organizations that had operated briefly and then been suppressed early in the 1970s began operating again, attacking and killing police and Savak agents. These two groups, which were ideologically aligned much more with Shariat Madari and Barzagan than with Khomeini, were the MKO, the People's Mojahedin of Iran, which was Islamo-Marxist, and the Fedayeen, which were more, if violently, in line with the Islamo-Socialist teachings of Shariati that I outlined last episode. Keep an eye on those two names, the MKO and the Fedayeen. On the American side, from Axworthy, quote, In foreign capitals, too, there was uncertainty. Having regarded the Shah's regime as more or less stable until the summer, the Carter administration was suddenly pitchforked into a predicament in which they had to consider the possibility, becoming a probability as autumn turned to winter, that the Shah would fall. If they continued to support him now, might that prejudice their relationship with whatever regime might replace him? Or was it time to encourage the Shah to repress the opposition with an all-out military crackdown? In Washington, Carter's national security advisor, Brzezinski, was arguing for the military option, while Cyrus Vance in the State Department, backed by Ambassador Sullivan in Tehran, was arguing against it. In a move that did little more than lose time, Carter appointed George Ball as an outside advisor. He presented a report to Carter in mid-December, but the report did not resolve the argument, unquote. The president called an emergency meeting. Our presumption was that the United States policies would be better off uh, if the Shah did stay in power. We were concerned that if Shah falls, the whole thing could become extremely unstable, not just in Iran, but in the region. But over how to save the Shah, the president's advisers were divided. Now, what I didn't mention earlier is that when Mehdi Barzagan got together with the other leaders of the secular opposition to firm up and unify their stance, they actually flew out to Paris to meet with Khomeini, and they came back affirming not only that they were in favor of a republic set up with Islamic principles, but also calling for the leadership, though not in any well-defined way, of the Ayatollah Khomeini himself. December in 1978 began with Muharram holiday, the second most holy month in Shia Islam after Ramadan, and one that ends after 10 days of mourning with Ashura, which commemorates the martyrdom of Ali. It is always a heady time in Iran, and it was even more so under the circumstances in 1978. All 10 days were marked by massive protests and corresponding violence on the part of the regime. By the end of the third day, hundreds of protesters had already been killed. 
The last two days of the period went forward under an agreement between the opposition and the regime to limit violence, and for the first time, they included large numbers of the rural peasantry in the cities for the holiday. The last day's march in Tehran drew anywhere between 2 and 5 million people into the streets. At the end of the procession, organizers presented, and the crowd ratified by acclamation, a set of political demands, including Khomeini's return and leadership, the overthrow of the Shah, the creation of the Islamic Republic, the return of exiles, the protection of religious minorities, the revival of agriculture, which I think is pretty cool, and social justice. The Washington Post reported at the time that, quote, the disciplined and well-organized march lent considerable weight to the opposition's claim of being an alternative government, unquote. Demonstrations were taking place in every other city in Iran during this same period, and by the end, as many as 9 million Iranians had turned out to show their opposition to the regime. From Axworthy, quote, The strikes continued and intensified. There were more demonstrations and protests across the country, under the black flags that had led the revolt of Abu Muslim over 1,200 years before. People began to speculate about the loyalty of the army. Khomeini's portrait was everywhere. Many had already taken down their pictures of the Shah. U.S. citizens and other foreigners were leaving the country. Numbers dropped from 58,000 Americans to 12,000 by the end of the month, unquote. By the last days of December, street violence and attacks on the police and security forces had become generalized, without relation to organized marches or strikes. A revitalized guerrilla movement launched assassinations of government officials and bombed American businesses, hastening the American exodus. The military situation was characterized by mass desertions of the rank and file, who could or would not shoot down their countrymen any longer. The generals had to stop ordering repression because they began to lose tanks and entire infantry companies spontaneously to the opposition. The Shah tried once more to bargain with the National Front, pleading with its leaders to take over the prime ministership and form a reconciliation government, but its senior leadership declined, remembering the crackdowns that had followed similar offers in 1963. Then the Shah turned to one Shapur Bakhtiar. From Ibrahimian, quote, Bakhtiar, a younger and less experienced leader of the National Front, who feared the clergy more than the military, offered to head a civilian government if the Shah merely took a vacation abroad, promised to reign rather than to rule, and exiled 14 diehard generals, including Ovesi, who had perpetrated Black Friday in Tehran. Grabbing at the offer, on December 30th, the Shah appointed Bakhtiar as prime minister. Unquote. Bakhtiar instituted reforms, canceling arms contracts, lifting martial law, and promising to hold elections. But national feeling held firm across ideological lines in a way that it had not when the Shah had appointed Sharif Imami. Bakhtiar's party, the National Front, disowned him, and while Shariat Madari told his followers to cool it a bit, he did not tell them to stop. Khomeini told his own flock to keep striking and demonstrating as before until they'd ushered in an Islamic Republic, and the people were with Khomeini. Bakhtiar formed a cabinet by the 6th of January and announced further reforms while the Shah made a public statement saying that he needed time abroad to recuperate from recent stress and that he would be leaving the country soon. Bakhtiar began preparing for elections, for the closure of Savak, the lifting of martial law, the formation of a regency council to sub in for the Shah, and he told Khomeini that he was free to return. Khomeini, along with his followers, ignored Bakhtiar and continued as they had done before. The Ayatollah announced the creation of the CIR, the Council of the Islamic Revolution, to coordinate strikes and protests. Axworthy notes that the CIR caused, quote, unhappiness among the politicians of the freedom movement and the National Front, 
whose representatives in the CIR felt outnumbered and marginalized by the clergy, unquote. And they probably should have felt left out, because Khomeini had in fact created the council secretly a couple of months beforehand, and had already been using it to coordinate with his followers in Iran. The Shah announced that he and his family would soon be taking an extended holiday. The Americans decided they had to act. Our intention was to make sure that the Shah's support was firm and to make sure that Iran didn't come apart. I said to the president that we ought to explore the question of what will be the behavior and the attitude of the Iranian military. President Carter turned to a general who had served in Iran. My instructions were to uh, give United States assurances to the military of Iran that we would support them. His mission was to go out and see if the Iranian military had the stomach to attempt a coup and to suppress the revolution. Like I said, Carter and his staff had been having a hard time deciding what they wanted to do with the deteriorating situation in Iran. And rather than taking a bold stand along the lines of any of his campaign principles, Carter dispatched General Robert Heuser to the country to work up military support for Bakhtiar's new reconciliation government, and, probably more importantly, to pave the way for a military coup if Bakhtiar wasn't up to the task. From Axworthy, quote, Heuser was a natural choice because he had been in Iran in the spring and summer of 1978, drawing up a command and control system for the Iranian armed forces, liaising with the highest levels of the military and with the Shah personally, unquote. When Heuser made it into the country, however, the American ambassador, William Sullivan, told him that the mission was off and that he would not be working to save Bakhtiar. There's some confusion here in the sources on exactly what the situation was, but it looks like either Sullivan contradicted orders from Washington, or at least gave D.C. enough pause to reconsider for a couple of days. Now, why was that? Sullivan, from what he'd seen in Tehran and the rest of the country, was already convinced that any government associated with the Shah, Bakhtiars or one formed with the general staff or whatever, was going to be totally unworkable. That the people, the Iranian people, wanted Khomeini that they wouldn't settle for less, and that if the U.S. wanted to get ahead of the game, it would reach out to Barzagan and Shariat Madari and the Ayatollah himself, Tude Sweet. If you heard my short show of a couple of weeks ago on the State Department, or you're an expert on Vietnam or the Foreign Service, this kind of situation will be familiar to you. The military has its own interests, even if it's serving the president, and in this case its interests and what it knew best lay with the Iranian military. Meanwhile, the ambassador, who works for the State Department, with his staff of professional foreign service officers in-country, was very much plugged into the situation in the palace and the streets, and had what was probably, or from our perspective definitely, a more realistic assessment of what was going on in Iran. But whether Sullivan was fudging or stalling, Washington had its own ideas, and within two days, on the 6th of January, it issued orders directing General Heuser to go ahead with reaching out to the Iranian military with all haste. Like pretty much everything in our policy towards that country since Truman left office, it was a serious misstep. Getting further into January now, although he'd been stalling, the Shah now did not see any way that Bakhtiar was going to let him stay in the country, let alone the people who were working at kicking Bakhtiar out of office, and the monarch flew out of Iran for the last time on the 16th of January. He'd expressed his confusion in a phone call to the British ambassador Anthony Parsons a week beforehand. Quote, Why, the Shah asked, had the people turned against him after all he had done for them? I said, and this is Parsons talking, 
The same forces which had humbled Nasruddin Shah in 1892 and had prevailed over Musafaruddin Shah in 1906 over the constitution had combined to bring down Mohammad Reza Shah, the mullahs, the bazaar, and the intelligentsia. I had never admired the Iranian people more than I had done in the past few months. Their courage, discipline, and devotion to the cause of overthrowing the monarchy had been amazing. The Shah agreed about the performance of his people, but rejected my analogies with his Qajar predecessors. Quoting the Shah now, I've done more for Iran than any Shah for 2,000 years. You cannot compare me with these people. Unquote and unquote. When the Shah had left, Parsons reported on the reaction in the capital by flash telegram back to the Foreign Office in Britain. Quoting that telegram now, At 2 p.m. local time, the radio announced that the Shah had left the country. There was a great burst of hooting of car horns and shouting of crowds. Looking from the chancery window, I can see people dancing in the streets, processions passing carrying Khomeini banners, all cars and buses with their lights on and horns blaring. The military guard outside our compound have removed their steel helmets and are waving pictures of Khomeini. People are rushing up to the soldiers and embracing them, a scene of wild jubilation which must be being enacted throughout Tehran. To come and inquire about the date of my departure and even the hour of my departure. That's all I discussed with General Heiser. Before his holiday, the Shah appointed a new prime minister, a moderate and former opponent of his regime, Shapur Bakhtiar. I hope that we can settle all disputes and misunderstanding between the king and the nation. We hope. Three days after the Shah's exodus, another massive rally brought a million into the streets of Tehran. And when they ended up in Shayad, soon to be Azadi, or Freedom Square, members of the secular and religious moderate resistance made a statement to the effect that the Shah had been overthrown, that any government, meaning Bakhtiar's, which had been appointed by the Shah was illegal, and they called upon the military not to stand in the way of the establishment of an Islamic Republic. Following that demonstration, Khomeini announced from Paris that he would be returning soon. Bakhtiar, despite having promised that the Ayatollah could return whenever, closed down Tehran's, and not coincidentally Iran's, major international airport. Protesters began to congregate outside the gates of Mehrabad International, and while I can't lay hands on an exact figure, it appears that many were shot down by the police and soldiery guarding the installation. Actually, says, and I believe, that the deaths of those demonstrators sealed the fate of the Bakhtiar regime, appearing as he did to average Iranians to be just another brutally repressive appointee of the Shah. Bakhtiar backed down by the end of the month, reopening the airport on the 31st, and Khomeini flew in the next day on the 1st of February. The Ayatollah was set to speak at a cemetery across town, and his driver spent a couple of thankless hours trying not to run over anyone in the crowds of three million that turned out, all of them trying to get a glimpse, lay a hand on the car, or climb on top of it. Eventually they gave up and found a helicopter to get the man to his speaking engagement. At the cemetery, the Ayatollah said, quote, The Shah destroyed our country and filled our cemeteries. He ruined our country's economy. Even the projects he carried out in the name of progress pushed the country towards decadence. He suppressed our culture, annihilated people, and destroyed all of our manpower resources. We are saying this man, his government, his majlis are all illegal. If they were to continue to stay in power, we would treat them as criminals and would try them as criminals. I shall appoint my own government. I shall slap this government in the mouth." Unquote. 
In the following days, Khomeini met with the members of the Council of the Islamic Revolution to begin construction of a provisional government, which would rule until a new Islamic Republic took over. He asked the leader of the liberation movement, who are, remember, the representatives of Ali Shariati's liberal sort of socialist Shiism, Mehdi Barzagan, to be his prime minister. Barzagan accepted, despite his and the Ayatollah's considerable private differences on what an Islamic Republic would eventually look like, and they announced the choice publicly on the 5th of February. Despite those private differences, both the religiously hard-right Khomeini and the much more liberal, democratically inclined Barzagan were on the same page, publicly. The overthrow of the Shah, a new constitution, some kind of leadership for Khomeini, and the Islamic Republic, whether that would be one which gave the clergy a small advisory role, like the Constitution of 1906, or whether it would be a true theocracy. More importantly, while guerrilla groups like the Mujahideen and the Fedayeen had more muscle, and the Tuda had much more organizing power among the working class than the liberal secularists like Mehdi Barzagan, Barzagan didn't scare the military like the guerrillas or the communists did, and above all, Khomeini wanted to head off a military coup like the one that had done away with Mossadegh. Barzagan and the liberation movement, for their part, got to take advantage of the masses' love for Khomeini and to try to use that love and support to craft a balanced final regime. At the announcement of Barzagan's prime ministership, Khomeini said that, quote, Through the guardianship that I have from the holy power, i.e. the Prophet Muhammad, I hereby pronounce Barzagan as the ruler, and since I have appointed him, he must be obeyed. The nation must obey him. This is not an ordinary government. It is a government based on the Sharia. Opposing this government means opposing the Sharia of Islam, and revolting against the Sharia, and revolt against the government of the Sharia has its punishment in our law. It is a heavy punishment in Islamic jurisprudence. Revolt against God's government is a revolt against God. Revolt against God is blasphemy." Unquote. As far as the mass of Iranians went, who were, especially in the cities, largely well-educated in government, liberal if not Western-oriented in their politics, and I mean classically liberal, constitutions, etc., even that speech wouldn't have seemed too odd or too religious given the circumstances. Axworthy argues, I think pretty successfully, that that Khomeini was a cleric, even a perceptively conservative one, wouldn't have struck even secular Iranians as all that strange or inappropriate. Clerics were prominent in the 1906 Constitutional Revolution, and had been prominent in the National Front in the time of Mossadegh. Axworthy writes that many of the more secularized middle-class members of the resistance liked and appreciated the role that Khomeini was playing now, of temporary leader and figurehead but that they expected the Ayatollah and the rest of the clerics to fade into the background, as they had in 1906 to 1910, in an established, if not universally accepted pattern in Iranian political life. After his 15 years in exile, rejecting every effort at compromise, the Ayatollah has planned his return with masterly timing. He's come back to a country which has been without effective government for months, and he intends to provide the effective government himself. Its main inspiration would be religious. The political initiative now lies totally with the Ayatollah. Now that he's back, he'll very soon announce the establishment of a government of his own. The existing government of Dr. Bakhtiar will declare that illegal. But for vast numbers of people in Iran, the Bakhtiar government is itself irrelevant. The real contest will be between the Ayatollah and the Shah's army, which hasn't yet shown signs of abandoning its old loyalties. But its shows of strength have been dwarfed by the enormous welcome the Ayatollah's supporters are giving him here. 
Before we move on, I want to lay out two more structures that were integral to the resistance, and which would continue to play an important role later on. The first were the comites, committees, which played almost exactly the same role as the Soviets in the Russian Revolution. Before Soviet came to mean everything it does now, it just meant council in Russian. And in the same way that Soviets sprung up all over the Russian Empire in 1917, in 78 and the beginning of 79, comites sprang up in every village and every city and in some places every neighborhood in Iran. The comites took over where the state, which was quickly retreating, left off. They organized protests, social services, local defense forces, policing to replace the official police, they distributed food, most anything necessary you could think of, all run by committee on an ad hoc basis, set up differently in different places, but almost everywhere set up and run by locals who seized at a chance to finally take local control of their communities. From Abrahamian, quote, For example, Ayatollah Kadami, a 90-year-old cleric who had opposed the Shah since 1949, set up a comité in the last week of January and controlled most of his city, Isfahan, by the first week of February. He was helped by diverse groups. Bazaar merchants provided financial assistance. Small shopkeepers volunteered to sell goods to the poor at a discount. Which, remember that a couple of weeks ago, Donald Trump said we couldn't waive the Jones Act and allow foreign flag freighters to take disaster relief to Puerto Rico because it would cut into the shipping industry's profits. Yeah. Clergymen opened their mosques to distribute food and fuel to the needy, because remember also, Iran is not that hot. Average temperature in February is just about freezing. Organized defense militias and bazaar guilds, as well as the many strike committees that had sprung up in large factories, began to coordinate their activities with the Comité also." Unquote. The Comités had another similarity to the Soviets, one which was to loom large in the spring and summer of 1979. In the same way that the Bolsheviks beat out the other parties vying for power in St. Petersburg, partly by having better control over the Soviets in all the other cities in Russia, most of the urban comités and many of the others were loyal to Khomeini. In outlying areas, they supported various parties, some of them explicitly regional, some of them followers of Shariat Madari or Barzagan, some of them even secessionist, like the ones that the Kurds set up in Iranian Kurdistan. But the balance stayed with Khomeini, which meant that even while Bakhtiar's government was in operation, Khomeini had de facto control of most of the country. The other thing, very briefly, the second thing that I mentioned a while ago, is that Khomeini, with the help of his right-hand man Rafsanjani, was quietly, at this point, setting the stage for the formation of a new party, the IRP, or the Iranian Republican Party, to bind together all those comités, guilds, ad hoc police forces, and the people's militias, the Pasadaran, or the Republican Guards, into one politically united organism. It was the most incredible scene. Nobody could possibly know how many millions lined the route of his 20-mile drive through Tehran, but it could not have been less than three. They'd come from all over the country to see the man they acknowledge as the only true leader of Iran and nothing was going to stop them getting even the briefest of glimpses. There were more than 50,000 stewards on duty, but within a mile of the airport, they'd already given up trying to keep the crowds back. They clawed at each other to get through and fought to clamber on the Dodge station wagon that carried him. Dozens were trampled underfoot in the bedlam as trucks and cars carrying cameramen and photographers jockeyed for position in the column. Clouds of dust blanketed the procession as it edged its way through the shouting throng. God is great, long live Khomeini. 
a humble priest who was little more than a respected theologian when he was forced into exile, it must have been an overwhelming experience. Into mid-February, it was becoming clearer and clearer that Khomeini and not Bakhtiar held the upper hand in Iran. The last question to be settled was on which side the military and the chiefs would come down. And the situation, despite the billions and billions of dollars that the Shah had poured into his military and its technology, was looking good for the revolutionaries. The armed forces had been formed by conscription, and in general their soldiery was as enthusiastic about the revolution as most poor Iranians, especially if Khomeini's success offered them an opportunity to stop shooting down unarmed civilians. The general staff and the colonels, by contrast, were unable to mount a coordinated counter-revolution because the Shah had intentionally set up the military for infighting and backbiting to keep it from becoming a coup threat against him. Axworthy offered an estimate of 1,200 desertions per day by the middle of the month of February 1979. On the 8th of that month, a large number of technicians and cadets from the elite Air Force Academy defected to the revolution, and the event was widely publicized in the papers. The next day, similarly aligned Air Force personnel at the Doshan Tapa base formed up to salute the Ayatollah when he appeared on state television. A detachment of the Imperial Guards, one of the few truly loyalist formations left in the Iranian army, attacked the Air Force men, and serious fighting developed that continued into the night and the morning of the 10th. The Air Force commander immediately issued weapons to his men, while by contrast the commander of the guards defected to the revolutionaries and stayed on the radio with his former superiors to try to prevent them from sending reinforcements. The Mujahideen and the Fedayeen, remember those two guerrilla organizations, sent in their own fighters to assist the Air Force and large crowds of revolutionaries turned out, in effect, to watch what they believed might be the critical moment in their struggle. Generals who still thought that they could pull this thing out sent a column of 26 British chieftain main battle tanks to crush the Air Force personnel. People in the streets swarmed the tanks, turning them back, destroying others after hauling out their crews, and welcoming more than a couple into the revolutionary fold as their commanders defected. Organized violence spread across the whole of Tehran, with protesters now not vandalizing police in other headquarters, but taking them over. With things quickly getting out of hand, Bakhtiar ordered a strict curfew, but the police and soldiery needed to enforce it were already being disarmed. Khomeini, very cognizant of Mossadegh's failure to call his people into the streets at the critical moment, encouraged the entire city to turn out and stay out overnight, and any possibility of a military takeover went out the window. The general staff met in the evening and into the night of the 10th, and decided that they were neither able nor willing to head off the revolution, and that they would take a step back and serve whatever government ended up on top. They informed Bakhtiar of the decision on the morning of the 11th. He took the news hard, but passed it on to Tehran Radio, which told the nation. Towards the middle of the 11th, Bakhtiar left from his office in a helicopter, originally to attend a meeting with Barzagan and some of the other resistance leaders. One of the people to be at the meeting told Bakhtiar that he wasn't going to be hunted down, but that it might be a good idea to skip the get-together all the same. The military did send a representative, who asked of Barzagan that he and Khomeini make a statement saying that the revolutionaries should not attack the army, and they agreed. From Axworthy, quote, On the afternoon of the 11th of February, U.S. Ambassador Sullivan was attempting to organize the safe evacuation of some U.S. military personnel who were trapped in a building that was under attack, when he received a series of telephone calls from the White House. In one of these, David Newsom asked him on behalf of National Security Advisor Brzezinski what were the chances of a successful military coup. 
Quoting the ambassador now, The total absurdity of such an inquiry into the circumstances then existing in Tehran provoked me to a scurrilous suggestion for Brzezinski that seemed to shock mild-mannered Undersecretary Newsom, unquote. Back in the U.S., General Heuser, who had left Iran on February 3rd without having achieved much on his mission, was asked the same day, as part of the same deliberations, whether and under what conditions he would return to Iran to quote-unquote conduct a military takeover. His response was more polite, but no more encouraging than Sullivan's, unquote. The American military intervention never materialized, and with the effective abdication of Bakhtiar on the 11th of February, that was that. Two days of street fighting had ended the Iranian monarchy, the Pahlavi dynasty, the constitution of 1906, and ushered in a new era, one to be decided by and between Mehdi Barzagan, Ayatollah Shariat Madari, and the Ayatollah Khomeini. Well, that is it for the first stage of the revolution in Iran 6. There's a lot of follow-up to come, everything from the hostage crisis to the Iran-Iraq war to politics in Tehran in the modern day, and I'm going to try to get through all of it as comprehensively as I can without losing this new pace. SFD is written, edited, produced, all the rest by me. I've got no staff, no secretary, and no team, except for all of you, and there's not much that you all can do for me except to get the word out. I'm as garbage at social media as the baddest baby boomer, and I need your help to get the show to the masses. Like I keep saying, if you're hearing this and not doing it, everybody else is hearing and not doing it too. Special thanks this time around to the members of the Bourbon Society of Franklin, Tennessee, to Alex Gary Gerice, an old Peace Corps war buddy, a fan, and a man who gave me some welcome words of encouragement at a wedding in Aguascalientes, and to Samara Boca Negra right here at home. That's all for now, guys, but next time it's the revolution in power, the Ayatollah, the new constitution, Jimmy Carter bumbling around, and Saddam Hussein. I'm John Coombs, and this has been Safe for Democracy. As we peer into society's future, we, you and I, and our government, must avoid the impulse to live only for today, plundering for our own ease and convenience the precious resources of tomorrow. During the long lane of the history yet to be written, America knows that this world of ours, ever growing smaller, must avoid becoming a community of dreadful fear and hate, and be instead a proud confederation of mutual trust and respect.